as we've kind of mentioned, uh, today's been a little bit of a, an unusual afternoon. I got a call at um, 1 o'clock from Kyle saying, hey, Ethan's not feeling pretty well. Have you, do you have a sermon ready? And I said, well, I've kind of been thinking about one, but I haven't exactly pinned it down or made a PowerPoint for it. And so he said, you know, can you go ahead and do that just in case things don't work out? And so this is the product of an hour and 30 minutes, I guess, work technically, but um, something that I've been thinking about a lot, not only for my life personally, but also for um, the Christians here at Lake Street, and something that I think we can all benefit from and be encouraged by. And, and the idea for our topic this, this evening is called Identity in Christ, um, which is something that I've borrowed from uh, the, the series that I've been working on with Colossians. As many of you know, I've kind of submitted my name to teach for the next quarter, which is January through, I think, March or something like that. And um, I've been preparing my own material and reading a lot on Colossians and things like that. And this is kind of from where I'm at currently in Colossians 3, um, talking about identity in Christ. So if you hear this, maybe at the end of February, the beginning of March, just pardon me and remember Easton's stomach issues going on. Uh, but this idea of identity in Christ um, actually came up whenever we were preparing for worship this evening, right? Richard says, you know, Charlie, we've changed your role. And, and Charlie says, well, what am I doing? Who am I? You know, am I the prayer? Am I the song leader? Am I, you know, what am I doing here? And that's something that a lot of parents really impress upon their children from a very young age to find their identity. And when we think about the world, we think about mainly four different types of things in which we find our identity. And I've kind of labeled them in all A's. The first is appearance, right? How you look. This is a lot of times what we see young women, especially attaching their appearance to, but also a lot of guys in the current culture, just thinking about how we look as, as the, the basis for our identity. Another thing that we have is this idea of acquisition or what we have. A lot of people, especially when you get older in life, base their identity based on what you have. You know, the house that you live in or the car that you drive or um, the type of phone that you use, whether it's the iPhone 7 or 6 or whatever you're on. Um, another thing that we can place our identity in is our accomplishments or what you've done. Another thing, the last one that I have is associations, who you know. And again, these ideas of appearance, acquisition, accomplishments, and associations are things that we find the world often placing their identity in. And we see that this often brings them to a demise or some sort of identity crisis later on in life. You see men, whenever their hair starts falling out or they get a little plump around the waist, and their appearance changes, that they feel like they have to scramble to find what else they can put their identity in. They buy this brand new car, they buy this motorcycle, or they you know, get hair transplants or something like that to, to fix their appearance or to fix the acquisitions that they've made, or the accomplishments, or the associations that they have. You know, they, they completely overhaul their friends, they get a new, you know, 20-year-old wife, because they're looking for their identity, and those, those things that they put their identity in soon change, and soon become less satisfying. And there's something important in the Bible, especially in the end of Colossians, in which he spent a lot of time talking about what other people are impressing upon them, is what's important, and things like that. And if you would uh, read with me verse, the first four verses of Colossians 3. Uh, the NIV says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Excuse me, not on earthly things. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so we see that Paul here directs these people to focus on heaven, where they are seated with Christ. In a sense, Paul reminds the Colossians of their identity in Christ, that they have been raised with Christ, which is the thing that he says right after that. And so this ultimate reality for Christ's followers is not on a set of circumstances, whether good or bad, that they find themselves in, 
but it's in their connection with Jesus in the heavenly realms. As a preacher and mentor to many Christians, Paul directed the majority of his energy towards helping Christians understand the implications and ramifications of their identity in Christ. And for Christians, if you think about it, everything flows out of our relationship and our union with Jesus. And you think about it, this, this comes back to a lot of, of applications that we can make in the world. You know, you think about a soldier on a battlefield who comes to the end of his resources and it feels like he has nothing left to give. And where do you think his thoughts go? If they're not going to the things around him, and if he's actually trying to make his way out of this battlefield, his thoughts often return to home. You know, he thinks about his family, thinks about his wife, or the love that he has for his mom and dad, or his kids. He thinks about his favorite pastimes, his most enjoyable meal, and his thoughts of home give him strength to, that he needs to continue fighting. The thoughts of the relationships that he has at home, but then also the things that he has at home. And likewise, Paul wants these Christians who are caught in the middle of a battle for their souls to think of their home with the Lord. Paul knows that if they do so, they will receive the necessary resources to fight the good fight of faith and to do so in a way that they'll win. And so since the Colossians have been raised with Christ, he tells them to do two things. He tells them to set their hearts on things above and to set their minds on things above as well. When I was looking up uh, kind of the, the etymology behind these words from the Greek, it's kind of interesting that the verb phrase that I've got underlined, to set your hearts on things above, is actually a translation from a single Greek word, which is what I would say, teo, meaning to seek or exert great effort to realize a goal, to strive or labor for something with all possible strength. And this verb is in the present, present imperative tense, indicating that it's an ongoing or consistent effort will be required to keep this thing happening. So he wants them to set their hearts on things above and to pursue that with all possible strength to realize this goal. But again, it's, it's in the present imperative that this is something that they're going to have to ongoingly and consistently give effort to in order to accomplish this. Again, the second thing that he reminds them of is he says, set your minds on things above. And so this idea, this verb phrase, again in the Greek, is translated from a single Greek word, which again I would say phroneo meaning to focus on a particular subject and giving it careful consideration to the point of arriving at a settled and confident perspective. Let me say that again because it's kind of wordy. This word of forneo means to focus on a particular subject and give it careful consideration to the point of arriving at a settled and confident perspective. And once again, this verb is in the present imperative sense. So it's talking about something that you have to give ongoing effort to and consistent effort to in order to give it the, quiet, the focus that it needs to accomplish this. And so Paul wants the Christians to continually seek out and focus on things of heaven, not only with their minds, but with their hearts, to be investing emotional and mental real estate in their heavenly dwelling. Not only just the place, but the person of Christ that we're with. And again, this is in contrast with things of earth. And if you contrast this with, with what we tend to do, you know, we have this idea of what Paul wants us to do, set our minds and hearts on heaven and on Christ and who we are in him. The natural human condition is for us as sinful people to focus on the immediate and the present. But Christ's redemption allows us to focus on the transcendent, what's beyond us, but then also on the future, which is God's plan for us and him especially reigning in heaven for us and with us. So once our hearts and minds are firmly lodged in Christ in heaven, the life that this world offers, which so often seems alluring and desirable, is revealed as a cheap substitute for the ultimate reality of what we have waiting for us. 
and the claims that the world has lose their power, right? That makes sense. Whenever our hearts and minds are set on how amazing our relationship with God is and how much better things will be in heaven, suddenly everything else grows a little dim on earth and it doesn't have much allurement to us. And so that's why it's so important to understand our identity in Christ is only once we discern the eternal value of an object, whether that be an enterprise, a person, um, you know, just some sort of possession, only then when we discern its eternal value will we be able to discover how to properly engage with that object, that entity, or that person, right? So again, just to recap, we need to understand our value of the identity with Christ. Because that's the framework for which we see everything else in the world. That's where our worldview starts, is who we are in Christ, and what he means to us, and what he says about our life. This is especially important to the, the whole kind of aspect of Colossians, because the Colossians are faced with false teachers who want them to labor and strive in order to achieve these heavenly spiritual heights. If you look back just a couple of verses from the where chapter 3 starts, you'll see that, um, in, especially in verse 21, Paul's admonishes them, you know, saying, I guess 20 actually, Paul's talking about what the, these false teachers are saying, and he says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not touch, do not handle, or do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These things, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Here what Paul is saying is he's, he's talking about things that false teachers are saying to them. You know, that you have to, I guess, submit to these regulations. You know, do not handle, do not touch, do not taste. You have to deprive yourself of these um, relations with other people, whether it be, you know, a marriage, be, staying celibate. You have to abstain from these certain foods. You have to abstain from these certain, you know, things that you're not supposed to be touching. But these things were just things that the false teachers were saying that they had to abstain from just so that they could appear more spiritual. Honestly, we see this in our world today. Catholicism, a lot of their priests remain celibate for this reason, essentially, because it makes them, quote-unquote, more spiritual, or it makes them appear more spiritual. And Paul is saying that if you want to achieve these greater spiritual heights, you've already attained those things. That because you are in Christ, and your identity is in Christ and in the heavenly realms— all you have to do is align your heart and mind with that reality, and that is developing this deeper relationship and this deeper understanding of, of spirituality. I, I want to flash up this quote for a minute by uh, Marlene May Thompson that I think couples with this really well. It helps me understand a lot. It says, Christians are not told to find something that they don't yet have, but to press further into the reality in which they already presently live. That's one of the kind of conundrums about um, just, I guess, Christ-centered counseling is that when people come to you, they want you to help them you know, find out something about themselves or find out something to fix their situation that they've never heard of before that you know, isn't really around in the world uh, that you wouldn't find from a professor or things like that. But what's amazing is that literally in Christian counseling, a lot of what you learn, it seems, is that you just press them into something that they already know. That they are Christ's and that Christ has a certain standard for them to live. That's essentially what it is. It's very, very easy. And so you have to help them press further into that reality in which they presently live, or in the case of Christian counseling, that they're not living or that they're not choosing to identify with. And so again, this, this idea of coming from identity in Christ, we've talked about Colossians and, and what's kind of bringing up this idea. 
But as far as identity in Christ, I want to talk about um, that this is one of the deepest truths of Christianity, and yet so few people realize it. And here's why I say that it may be one of the deepest tr- truths of, Christian, of, of Christianity. Um, as I was doing some phrase searches, um, this is the phrase that Paul uses most in his writing to a three-to-one ratio. Is this idea of, in all of his 13 letters, he says in Christ or with Christ three times more than he says any other phrase. And so Paul spends a ton of his time in his writings talking about our identity in Christ. And so we see that it's important. That's what he spends his time on, and that's honestly what we should spend a lot of our time thinking about as well. Which, for the greater purpose of reading Paul's literature, for centuries, people approached Paul's work as if the central theme was justification by faith. This idea that we are sinful people and we can do nothing to save ourselves. Yet Christ came and died on a cross so that we can have access to his blood and obtain the righteousness that he has for us in exchange for our sinful nature that's put upon him. But way more often than Paul is talking to you about your sins or Jesus' righteousness, making that exchange to make us have salvation, he talks about you being in Christ. And your life, your thoughts, your heart, everything that's true about you being caught up in him so that all we need to do now is abide in him and live our life from that fresh perspective of our hearts and minds being set on being in him. Along these lines, in verse 4, Paul says, Oh, excuse me, verse 3 and 4. It says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Again, what is true of us is no longer true of us, and what is true of Christ is now true of us. Our identity is completely in him. And what a profound statement. And so now I want to kind of switch and engage this idea from an Old Testament passage. If you would turn to Exodus 33. I think this is something we don't often think about in relation to identity in Christ, but it's something that I think is really, really powerful. This, this kind of text from Exodus 32 and Exodus 33. Um, just so we don't have to read all of that, I'll kind of summarize what's going on. Um, in Exodus 32, um, you see that you know, Moses is on Mount Sinai receiving the, the law. And as he's on Mount Sinai, the Israelites have just committed idol- idolatry. They've constructed this golden calf in the image that it's supposed to be Yahweh's. They've made an image that's supposed to be God to them. But they're worshiping this this golden calf, Yahweh, with singing, dancing, and revelry, which literally means that they were getting drunk and, and doing all sorts of sexually immoral things in the name of God and worshiping him, which is something that a lot of the pagan gods would require of their people who would worship them. So they're worshiping God in the same way that they would worship other gods of the world. And so God is furious, and he says that he's going to destroy all these people and just start over with Moses and his family. And Moses pleads with God to spare these people, and it says that God changes his mind. It's one of the 32 times in the Old Testament in which God has said that he changes his mind, where he says, here's the path, here's the course, and then the people pray, and something changes about that. So God relents, but he sends this plague that kills 3,000 people throughout the, the nation of Israel. And that's chapter 32. But in 33, God says, I'm not going to destroy you. I guess I've actually got it written up here. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to you, to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. Again, that's from the NIV, so it kind of gives a more personal reading there. 
But essentially God's saying, you know, I'm going to send this angel to go before you and give you all these things so that you can go and live. I'm going to drive out all these people and give you all this possession, but I won't be with you. And you would think of these people who've been, you know, slaves for four and a half centuries, who've been wandering around for another 40 years, just kind of aimlessly going around, you know, year after year, would jump on this opportunity to have the promise of freedom, of land, of safety, security, wealth, everything they could have wanted and everything they didn't have. But God at the end puts in this caveat. He says, but I'm not going to be with you. My presence will not go with you. And this is the first time in practically all of Exodus in which they do something right. And they refuse to wear their jewelry. They mourn and they plead for Moses to go plead for their behalf to God and ask him to change his mind yet again. And so in the, the, the next part of chapter 33, Moses does that very thing. He pleads to God and enters this discussion with God and says, if you don't go with us, what will distinguish us? Again, in Exodus 33, verse 15 and 16, it says, Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not, said to him, excuse me, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And that's something that's interesting for me, that last question that he says. What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Again, he's basically saying we don't want our nationality to distinguish us, our race to distinguish us, our education, our skill set, our jobs. We don't want a single thing in our lives to distinguish us besides your presence and being with you. So the application for this evening, is, or this afternoon, is really simple. Is that something that's true of us? Is the thing that, that people think about us when we come to their minds is that they know God? or that our identity is in God, or that we want God more than anything else? Because that's essentially saying what's the most important thing to Moses, what should be the most important thing to Israel, is that their relationship with God distinguishes them from everybody else. And so that's the application part for us, is that God's presence should be what defines us, and God's presence is what characterizes us. And that we are a people who only want God, our identity is not supposed to be in this world, in our appearance, in our associations, in our acquisitions, and whatever the other one that I said was, in our accomplishments. You know, how we dress, our personality, our job, our family. Our identity is in Christ and in the heavenly realms. And again, what is true of him is true of me. And to that extent, whatever is not true about us or whatever doesn't fall into our identity with him, we should hope to be changing within us. Another thing that's kind of interesting about this passage in Exodus is that Moses not only makes the request for God's presence to go with the Israelites, but he makes two more requests after that. He asks God to show him his glory because it's not enough for God's presence to dwell with him. He wants to look like God. And we see that God grants him that glory. He shows him his face for these 40 days. And whenever Moses comes down out of the mountain, his face shines like that. And so the secondary application is after we have his presence with us and we are marked for looking like him, do we shine with his glory? Do we see his reflection in each other's faces or in each other's personality in their hearts? And are we completely engulfed in who God is? And I hope that that's not a request that Moses made that's just confined to the pages of Exodus. I hope that's something that we can even ask in our own personal prayer life, that God will show us his glory, that he shows us how to be more and more like him and to, to have our identity deepen in him so much 
that our presence is reflected with other people as well, that we, that we have that presence with him. The other request that Moses makes is not just his, for his presence to go with him, not just for his glory to be shown on him, but in, verse, uh, in chapter 34, um, starting in verse 6, it says, The Lord passed before him, meaning Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and on the children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and sin, and take us for your inheritance. That's the last request that Moses makes. Again, he makes the request for God's presence to go with him, for God's glory to shine on him, and for him to see his glory, but also that God would make them his inheritance. And if you think about it, that's a bold request. He's essentially asking that God would make the people of Israel, or the people that identify in him, the thing that he most desires, the thing that he most treasures, the thing that he is the most valuable possession to him in the entire universe. And look what God says in verse, six, in verse 10. It says, God says, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as I have not been, has, have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Essentially, he says, yes, you will be my inheritance. I will make you someone that I'm proud of because you are my people. Not only because I have made you my people, but because you choose to be my people and you want to be known as my people. And if we think about not only this idea of how important it is for our spiritual lives to be grounded in who we are in Christ, not only in our hearts, but in our minds, our thoughts and our emotions being completely wrapped up in who we are in Christ, that changes us. But not only the fact that, that we recognize that, but knowing how much delight that gives our Father. Knowing that He is willing to make us the most important thing to Him because we identify with Him. If you think about that, we see that in marriages all the time. That it's so amazingly beautiful when we see two people who are saying that I will be exclusive with you for the rest of my life. You are the most important thing to me on this earth. How much more so is that important for our relationship with Christ? I was reading some facts and figures about um, this idea of identity with Christ, and um, a denominational uh, pastor had surveyed people and, and just had worked with this, this congregation that had 15,000 people in it. And when asked about all of the people that were in his congregation, he, about how many people solidly understood that their identity was in Christ, he said less than 5% of people at that church would probably realize the depth of what that means, that their identity was in Christ. That the way that they lived, the way that they acted, the way that they thought, the way that their heart felt, all revolved around who Christ was and who he is to us. He said less than 5% understood that. And it's amazing to think that, I, I, don't, I don't know if that correlates to, uh, to you know, the Church of Christ, but it's amazing to think that how little time we spend on this idea of our identity in Christ. When again, this is the thing that Paul spends the majority of his, his epistles writing about. So I hope this has been something that's been helpful for you to think about this, this uh, afternoon. To think about what it means for us to focus on heaven, to focus on Christ being our life, and to focus on our identity not being in our appearance, 
our acquisitions, our accomplishments, or our associations. That we are characterized by having our identity in Christ and whose we are in him. The last scripture I have for you is in Jeremiah 9. Um, This is something that I've shared with you guys before, but it's such a powerful passage that correlates to this. Jeremiah 9, starting in verse 23, it says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight. Isn't that such an amazing thing to think about, that we're not supposed to be boasting in what we know, what we have, but we're supposed to be boasting in who we know and whose we are. Um, if that's something that you think about tonight, that you haven't been placing your identity in Christ, you've been more wrapped up in things of this world, who you know or what you look like or you know the things that you have, and that you haven't been placing your identity in what Christ has for your life. And that's something that we can help you with. Um, I hope that you would come forward um, whenever we stand and sing for a moment. Um, but also if that's something that you feel like, um, you know, that even in your own family you could work on a little bit more and then pointing each other to have, being more identified with Christ. I pray that's something that you can change and that maybe you can tell some other people about, about that and encourage them. Um, if there's anything that you need, I ask that you come forward now as we stand and sing.